Hanukon. 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 You're listening to Hanukon Podcast, highlighting citizen Potawatomi Nation issues, members, and more. Please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. Just search Hanukon Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Paige Willett. During this episode, we visit with an author about her new book that tells stories from a tribal elder's childhood, a domestic violence prevention specialist about National Stalking Awareness Month, and a historian about the 155th anniversary of the last treaty CPN signed with the federal government. January is National Stalking Awareness Month, shining a light on the more than 6 million victims each year in the United States. I spoke with Kayla Woody, CPN's House of Hope Domestic Violence Program Prevention Specialist, about what stalking looks like, the need for education, and how to help those in need. That's a pretty high number um, when you really think about just people that you know around you. You know, if you come from a, a family of, you know, five siblings, one of you is going to have to endure that in your lifetime. And it's, it's good to know that information, not only to keep yourself safe, but to keep those safe around you who you love and care about. Stalking is probably one of the most underreported crimes um, in the nation, because it is very difficult to prove, the evidence surrounding stalking can look very different. And to be able to charge someone with stalking, you have to have really that pattern of behavior. So it has to be something that happens more than twice. What does stalking look like? Like I said, stalking is going to be a pattern of behavior towards one specific person. So not a group of people, but just one specific person. Um, that's intended to bring fear um, and that would cause any reasonable person to feel fear. I really feel like stalking and domestic violence, they intersect um, and have a lot of the same characteristics because it is centralized around power and control. So really that stalker um, is ultimately trying to have control over that victim. What are some of the behaviors that either will set a pattern or like you were saying can be switched up yes so we see things like unwanted gifts um, where most people on the outside of that situation may think oh that's really romantic or that's really sweet Um, someone who may be victim to that will look at it as I've told this person to leave me alone why do they keep sending me these things we see behaviors like constant um, checking up on on the victim calling texting sending emails, sending Facebook messages, um, following them, you know, to their place of employment, um, to their home, to the grocery store. We also see that technology is becoming (laughs) a little bit more of a problem when we talk about stalking because it's making it easier for these perpetrators to keep tabs on their victims. Um, They're using social media They're using trackers on their phones and devices. Um, We see some quite a few different behaviors. And and I've only been working with stalking for three years, and I've learned so many different behaviors. But I know that I will continue to learn new ones as time goes on and, you know, society changes. So we actually see that most victims that are stalked know their perpetrator. 
Um, it's either a current intimate partner or a past intimate partner. Um, partners are using this technology to see where their where their intimate partner is going, what they're doing, how long they've been there, and it definitely is a very possessive power and control type of behavior. For someone who's trying to look out for someone who may be uh, being stalked, what are some of those patterns? What are some of those um, behaviors that you can notice? Um, these victims tend to be very jumpy, always um, trying to you know see what's around them. Um, they may be constantly questioning things that are going on. So, you know, if you have a friend or family member that's stated things like, well, this is really odd, or this happened to me today, and I don't really, you know, I'm not really sure how to kind of put this together. Um, We really encourage people to try your best to question the situation. Um, If you feel like that person that you care about is in danger, um, especially if you think that they're going to be harmed, I would, I would definitely recommend reaching out to law enforcement or, you know, our, our organization provides a free emergency shelter to anyone who feels unsafe in a domestic violence situation, sexual assault situation, or stalking situation. So we have that there to provide assistance to them and really trying to reach out to that person and say, hey, I, I'm, I'm worried about you. Have you considered contacting these people? We also encourage victims who feel like they may be stalked Um, to keep a log of those things that are happening. It's very important to have a paper trail of those behaviors because we see with stalking it is a pattern. And, you know, many judicial systems are going to want to see that that paper trail and that pattern to be able to put charges in place. So we encourage victims to write down the time, the date, exactly what happened, take pictures, you know, call the police and report every single time as frustrating as that may seem to them, um, you know, this this isn't doing me any good, this isn't helping, over time they're going to be able to put together that paper trail and be able to show this is stalking. Um, so we definitely encourage those logs. And we have those logs on our website you can download, as well as the Sparks website, which is stalkingawareness.org. So you can find those logs there. What are people always surprised to know or to learn about stalking? I really think that most people do not have a good knowledge of what stalking is. Um, They tend to see stalking from a media standpoint. I almost like to see it as this stranger in the dark who's peering around the corner, who you don't know, um, who almost has this infatuation with you, or um, quite a majority of stalking victims have reported that they knew their stalker um, and knew them very well. Um, That's how these stalkers are able to infiltrate and get in and understand these victims is because they do know them. They know where they work. They know um, where they live and the things that they like to do. And when that stalker is an an intimate partner, it makes things even more difficult because not only do they know the basic things of this person, they also know their spending habits. Um, They know how they react to certain things. Um, They know their family members. Um, they've, you know, experienced things with them. So it makes it even more difficult um, in that type of situation. And it may make it even harder for a victim to report against someone that they are in a relationship with or have just recently, you know, left a relationship with. Um, I really think education is such a wonderful tool. 
Um, because once you are aware of what's going on, you have more power to make those changes. Um, and I think this education that we are doing here um, can make some big changes in our community. CPN's House of Hope regularly updates its website with upcoming events and trainings at cpnhouseofhope.com. Find them on Facebook at CPN House of Hope. If you or someone you know is experiencing stalking, domestic violence, or sexual assault, call House of Hope's 24-7 crisis line at 405-878-HOPE or the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 800-787-3244. The Kansas prairie during the 1930s pushed farmers to their limits. The combination of the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl droughts resulted in painful sacrifices and restructured agricultural practices throughout the country. During that time, Citizen Pottawatomie Nation tribal member Mary Petticord Prickett lived on her family's farm in Wamego, Kansas. Family friend Kim Ross listened to Prickett talk for hours about her childhood, and her stories inspired Ross to write her first novel, Deep Roots, Tall sky. Having a first-hand source material who can answer your questions from 1934 is a fleeting and brilliant gift. When I started working on this, she was 90 some years old, and I thought, oh, I probably don't, we probably don't have long to get these questions, right? Ross met Prickett through her daughter, Sue Prickett. The two performed theater together in the greater Seattle, Washington area in the late 1980s and early 90s. Ross knew Mary for nearly three decades before interviewing her for Deep Roots, Tall Sky. For some strange reason, I mean, I'd known this woman for 25 years and I was shy to call her up on the phone. But once I got over that, it was great because I talked to her on the phone and she and I would talk for like two hours. We would just go on and on and on. Prickett's daughter interviewed her as well, which Ross said helped heal both of them. Like, did you ever do that? Stand up for somebody? Oh, uh, yeah, all my life. <laughs> Prickett lived at CPN Elder Housing in Rossville, Kansas, and Ross visited several times during the five years she worked on the book. Ross described the Bourbonnet family descendant as strong, heroic, funny, and fiercely loyal, protective of those she loved, and a brilliant friend. Telling her story and having it listened to was extremely enlivening for her. Ross labeled Deep Roots Tall Sky as historical fiction based on fact and researched the period and the pedicords while writing. She read countless articles from local newspapers about the area and the family's happenings. I personally feel an obligation as a writer to present a story as, as close to what actually happened in a way that is that a modern person can perceive it and transport and be in that world. Deep Roots Tall Sky takes place from January to August 1934, the year Prickett turned nine. In June, Congress authorized the Drought Relief Service to attempt to relieve farmers of some of the effects of the Great Depression and Dust Bowl. The government began purchasing cattle and calves in drought-stricken communities where farmers' livestock had little to eat or drink. The Petticord's farm, located on their original Pottawatomie allotment land in Kansas, still had a running well at the time, but many of the surrounding farms were not as fortunate. The government eventually made its way to their community. 
Mary Petticord knew their intentions and set out to save her beloved calf. So she's been spying on everybody and she's totally focused on what's going to happen to her little calf. So she finds out that the calf is in with all the other cattle. We're going to be shot. And even though it means going against her father, um, she steals away in the middle of the night with a calf and hides in a cornfield and saves her calf from this slaughter. Did you learn any life lessons from the cow hiding the cow? Oh. Yes, if you if you make a good plan, I will if you suffer the consequences and uh, really work on it. No matter my life lesson there was, yes, you can pull a deal like that and nobody can catch you until yeah. it's all over. <laughs> Ross always felt compelled by the story of a young farmer's daughter holding on to what she cherished during a time of hardship, however unrealistic. You feel that pull in your heart of this little bit of innocence inside this tough little practical kid is demanding um, space. It's demanding uh, to be listened to. According to Ross, Prickett's childhood remained her favorite period of her life. She remembered living on the farm as a time of closeness and love for her family and their animals. I think it was an, an Eden for her even with all the troubles, because I mean, imagine you're a kid, you live on a farm, you get a river, you can go fishing, you've got cousins. She had cousins who lived just down the road. Prickett's father, Jerry Petticord, served in World War I, and she and her sister Ruth joined the Junior Auxiliary of the American Legion. While Prickett told Ross stories about different parts of her life, Ross heard about what she called Prickett's heroic nature that she inherited from her father. Like she knew what it took to be a hero. She knew what it took to make her world happen. And so she, she learned that she, she exuded that. And part of thing, part of my struggle as a writer was to realize that the woman that I knew who was 90 years old was the result of what happened when she was eight and nine, not the person who went through the things when she was eight and nine. And, you know, people grow, right? Prickett kept her independent nature and always enjoyed living on her family's farm and original allotment. She eventually left their land to attend college and work. During World War II, her sister went off to work in a factory. Her brother went off to join the military. And she tried working in a factory, but it just seemed stupid to her. And she ended up uh, coming back and being like this girl was the one who helped her father run their farm during World War II. She married an architect, David Prickett, and became what Ross called a 1950s housewife. Prickett thrived as a homemaker, but always sought other ways to be helpful. For years, she volunteered with Topeka organizations that assisted victims of domestic violence. She always prioritized taking care of her family, and Mary and her daughter Sue talked every day. The chance to discuss Mary's childhood made their conversations more interesting and meaningful. Really being able to look at parts of their lives, Mary's life in this case, um, that are only relevant to this moment because of that connection and because we're interested and because it's part of who she is. You know, it's like it wouldn't come up in ordinary conversation, you know, what it was like to pour molasses on straw to make the cattle eat it, you know, but it's interesting. Prickett walked on in November 2020 at 95 years old due to complications from COVID-19, but not before she read the first few drafts of Ross's novel. 
All right. Okay. Thanks, Mom. Sure. Anytime you need an interview, it'll be about 5000 for a half hour. Okay. You All right. Quit. Bring them. Bring the clients. Okay. <laughs> Bye. 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 Kim Ross is currently searching for a publisher for Deep Roots Tall Sky. Read Mary Petticord Prickett's obituary in the February 2021 edition of the Hounicon at cpn.news backslash Hounicon 2021. February 2022 is the 155th anniversary of the Treaty of 1867, the last of several treaties that the citizen Potawatomi signed with the U.S. federal government. This treaty was the final push for the first citizen Potawatomi families to move from Kansas to Indian Territory. The U.S. government officially ended treaty negotiations with Native American tribes in 1871. Conditions were very tumultuous in Kansas in the 1860s. Lying at the geographic center of the U.S., people began flooding west in the late 1840s during the California Gold Rush, which built up the California and Oregon trails across the Kansas River. Residents experienced violent confrontations in the 1850s, such as Bleeding Kansas, that propelled the country towards the Civil War, which lasted from 1861 to 1865. In 1861, the Potawatomi signed a treaty that effectively split up those already living in Kansas. One group continued to live on a communal portion of land and later became the Prairie Band Potawatomi Nation. Approximately two-thirds signed the Treaty of 1861 and opted for allotments in Kansas and U.S. citizenship. Citizen Potawatomi Nation Cultural Heritage Center Director Dr. Kelly Malsteller said those who took allotments and started the foundation for CPN anticipated a shift toward individual land ownership as the official Indian policy of the federal government. The railroads, oil companies, and federal government, as well as settlers and squatters, all wanted the land promised to the Potawatomi in 1861. One of the, the great complaints about when we, when we took our um, allotments on the Kansas Reservation was that we were taking the best plots of land by the river with the, the greatest timber. And of course, all of the quote-unquote surplus land was supposed to be going to the railroads. And so the railroads desperately wanted the timber and all. And they were getting very upset that we were choosing these best parcels. And it's, you, you just sit here and think, well, of course we did. While some Potawatomi had found fortune and business opportunities from those stopping as they headed west, overall conditions wore on citizen Potawatomi in unforgiving ways. The federal government broke promises of the Treaty of 1861, not providing seed or equipments to farm the land and collecting taxes on the allotments almost immediately. It took advantage of the resulting poverty and land loss by implementing what Dr. Mosteller called an escape clause of the 1861 treaty. It was written in and it was worded in a way basically saying if any parties in this arrangement find that they are not thriving and doing well in Kansas, they have the option to engage in yet another treaty with the federal government to create a reservation somewhere outside of Kansas. The resulting Treaty of 1867 outlined the citizen Potawatomi's move to Indian Territory and promised them more than 575,000 acres stretching from the North Fork of the Canadian River to the South Fork, which encompasses what is now Potawatomi County, Oklahoma. However, the families moving had to fund their journey on their own, and it took five years for them to begin to move. Dr. Mosteller said they overcame many obstacles and gathered their resources. They had to settle their business in Kansas and sort of traveling in groups was safer 
and you have to wait for the right time of year because the the there's not a road really. There's there's a trail that you follow, and you have to make sure that you're arriving at a certain time of the year so that your wagons don't get stuck, so that you aren't coming right at the beginning of winter and you don't have time to build any kind of lodging or, you know, there's a lot of logistics. The Anderson, Bourbonnais, Malo, Clardy, Pettifer, Bergeron, and Tupin families were some of the first to arrive in Indian Territory with 14 wagons filled with supplies, only 28 people. They mostly stuck together, at least during the first few months after moving, knowing survival came with strength in numbers. Dr. Mosteller called the Treaty of 1867 one of convenience for the federal government because it ultimately gave them access to profitable resources and land in Kansas. The pressures of assimilation and acculturation, including through legal formalities, forced the Potawatomi to relinquish their rights and land granted via treaty with the U.S. several times. They were signing these treaties because they knew what it meant to resist. They knew ultimately the federal government had the power to force you to bend to their will. So we're going to move into this new era, agree to these new terms, but we're going to try to do so as much as possible on on our own turf. We're going to try to do the best we can to make this government work with us and for us, not just bend us to their will. Although the citizen Potawatomi and federal government signed no more treaties after 1867, those same pressures continued in old and new ways. Promises continued to be broken. They found the government had sold them lands that the absentee Shawnee had inhabited for four decades, and the Oklahoma land rents began less than 20 years later. Dr. Mosteller often reminds tribal members of the citizen Potawatomi's resilience. When people ask us about, you know, cultural loss today, this is where I point out, like, be thankful for what our ancestors were able to hold on to. They were doing so, the language, the ceremonies, all of these teachings, they did so against a lot of very great pressures that you and I today do not fully understand. The CHC works tirelessly to preserve and share the culture of the citizen Potawatomi Nation and its history. Learn more at the Cultural Heritage Center's website, PotawatomiHeritage.com. Follow the CHC on Facebook at CPN Cultural Heritage. It's time for learning language when the CPN Language Department joins us to teach vocabulary, songs, stories, and more. In this segment, Department Director Justin Neely introduces shapes and teaches how to describe them in Bodewab Mimwen. Bojo Jack, hello everyone. So today we're going to talk a little bit about shapes. Now shapes tend to be a little more complicated in Potawatomi than maybe they are in English, but because our our language is very descriptive in nature, it's it's pretty easy to be able to talk about the way something looks and to describe it. Um, occasionally, if we don't have a word for something, we'll use jinkade. And that's another way you can go about it. If you get into that situation where you're talking the language and you're like, oh, Nuijia Iba, you know, McDonald's jinkade. You know, you don't have a word for McDonald's and you want to say, you can just say jinkade, which means it is called. So if you like get to a point where you can't think of a word, you can't think of a shape and you want to keep talking the language, you can always just throw like, if you can't remember the shape, the word for star, for example, you could just say star jinkade. So a lot of these words for these shapes, uh, I got quite a few of them uh, several years ago from uh, Rita Sands in Walpole Island, a really good uh, elder and speaker of the language. 
So kuk dewen, kuk dewen is a square, and that kuk, that mkuk is like a box. So what it's saying is it's like that box shape, kuk dewen. Wow ye yawen is a circle, wow ye yawen. And then wow ye ya is the verb to be circular. So like it's circular. So if you said like wow ye yam get, it's it is circular. Wow ye ya wen, when you put that wen on it, you're making it into a noun. So you're just saying like circle. And that wow is really the essence of that circular motion. Wow yasto is a tornado, and it's talking about that circular motion of the of the wind, that wow yasto. Or Wowjawin would be like water that's kind of swirling, kind of like an eddy or a, a whirlpool. Wowjawin. And so again is a triangle. And so again, or so again nayak. And so again nayak. It means it is triangular. And that and so is talking about three sides to it. The word for three is swe. But when we talk about like sequences of things, that word changes to so. So again can also be used to describe anything that's like three-sided. So again. Sometimes it's even used for a teepee, talking about like the three poles or the three sides to it. So again. Shkwadem mayuk. Shkwadem mayuk is a rectangular. Shkwadem magen. Shkwadem magen is just rectangle, the, the noun form of it. This one here is talking about the shape of a door. Shkwadem is a door. So squadem magen is the thing that's that's the shape of a door. Squadem magen. Ekjakwaja nabuk is one word for diamond. Ekjakwaja nabuk. Now we have a little bit easier word for diamond too that we've coined over the years. It, it's a wasksen. Wasksen. And that word is actually talking about that shine of the diamond, uh, the way it reflects the light, that wasksen on the actual stone itself. So Ekjakwaja nabuk or wasksen. Nagos is a star, nagos. And obviously that one's not a hard one to come up with because we definitely have a, a word. We've always had a word for the stars, nagos. Nagosuk, more than one star. So nagos. Nyano again. Nyano again. A pentagon. Nyano is talking about five, so it's five sided. Nyano again nayak. It's pentagon shaped. So nyano again. Nyano again. And that nyano comes from nyanin. Nyanin is five. And when you, again, when you use it in a sequence, it kind of gets shortened to nyano. Uh, example, that would be also with like the word Friday. We say it's the fifth day. Nyano gijuk. Wawengen. Wawengen. An oval. Wawengen. And wawen is an egg. So it's egg shaped. Wawengen. But the wow part is just like in the circle. It's talking about that circular shape and then that wawen. Is talking about an egg. So, wow, wingen. Now, in some communities, um, they just say wow for the egg and wowen for eggs, plural. Um, so, you might, you could also say wowgen or wowengen. But wowengen to me makes it, sounds, seems more logical to me. Wowengen. Wowengen nayak, it's oval shaped. Wowengen nayak, it's oval shaped. Gotwatso again. Gotwatso again, hexagon or six-sided. Gotwatso again, gotwatso again nayak. It's hexagonal. Gotwatso again nayak, six-sided. Schwatso again, octagon. Schwatso again, and that's eight-sided. Schwatso is the word for eight. Schwatso again. Schwatso again nayak. It's octagon-shaped. 
schwatzo again nayak. So the difference between these two is one is more of the verb form of it, and the other is the noun. The schwatzo again, the one that ends in gen or when, that's your noun form. Like if you're just pointing at, like that's a, and if you're saying it is shaped in that way, you would use the schwatzo again nayak. And that's all we have here today for shapes. Yo. For more information and opportunities with language, including self-paced classes, visit cpn.news backslash language. You can find an online dictionary at potawatomidictionary.com, as well as videos on YouTube. There are also podcasts produced and brought to you by Citizen Potawatomi Nation's Public Information Department. Our director is Jennifer Bell. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find what you listen to. We're also on Facebook at Citizen Potawatomi Nation and on Twitter at C underscore P underscore N. Visit us on the web and find digital editions of the tribal newspaper at Potawatomi.org. That's P-O-T-A-W-A-T-O-M-I dot org. Until next time, I'm Paige Willett. Miigwech Nikanek, Bamamina. Thank you, friends. See you later.